Hello, welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have Lorraine Ferguson, author of The Unapologetic Saleswoman and fellow Sandler trainer, as my guest. Hi, Lorraine. Hi, Marcus. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Lorraine, would you mind giving us an introduction to who you are and your background in professional selling? Well, certainly. And thank you very much, Marcus, for the opportunity to be part of your podcast. Like many people, I got into sales by necessity. I started my career in the mid-80s working for a startup technology company, and we had one customer. So I'm realizing pretty early that I was not going to have a long career with them unless we had more business. So I decided to take the leap and join a team of salesmen. And I say men because back in the 80s, it really was just men, it seemed, that were selling. I had no experience. I was in my mid-20s. So what I did was what salesmen did. It was the only thing that I knew at the time. And what that means is that I was following a very traditional approach to selling a lot of feature-benefiting pressure-oriented approach, deal-making to try to convince people to buy, which quite frankly was not very comfortable for me. And I found in my early selling days that I was often intimidated by the men that I called on or not taken seriously. In fact, I can tell you that I many times when I was asked to take notes, if I was there with my boss, who happened to be a guy, oftentimes was asked to bring that manager with me when it came time to negotiate. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is just going to be a temporary sort of thing. I I must be a bad salesperson. And I began to think, well, maybe there's more to this story than my inexperience and lack of knowledge. But of course, this didn't really come out until much later in my career. But as a young girl, and I think this is true of many young girls today, we are taught that being good means accommodating others, knowing our place, waiting our turn acting like a lady if we're too opinionated. And little did I know at that time that those types of messages and my ultimate belief system were making me an excellent candidate to follow the buyer's lead. Really, what I mean by that is accepting the role of not being an equal and looking at my sales role as being one in which I needed to please. So it kind of cost me my dignity and quite frankly, a lot of money over the years. So fast forward, I learned about this organization called Sandler Training, had a couple of colleagues of mine that had become part of Sandler, and that was back in 2005. So I took probably the biggest risk of my life, and that is I quit my job, no longer had that paycheck coming in, and I bought the Sandler franchise. And since that time, I've been able to really work with hundreds of women and men to transform how they sell and how they think about themselves which really is to better protect their own self-interest and to create a a more equal playing field in that buyer-seller situation. I'd love to pick up on that. One of the most fundamental lessons that I've learned in Sandler is you will only perform to the level that your self-concept will allow. Do you mind taking me through your journey of that realization and how you've applied that in the context of your selling? First of all, I work with many women, and what I have noticed over the years is, and it kind of is, it's unfortunate, but still true. When I was growing up, I was lucky to have parents that were very supportive, 
I remember my mom always saying to me, hey, Lorraine, you don't have to be like everyone else. Be yourself. You're good at what you do. Those childhood messages that came through. So I had that kind of support system. But what I found is when I got into the world of sales, it was really affecting my confidence because I was definitely in a world where women were in the minority. So I didn't really have a support system of people that were women that I could really speak with. So I had to do a number of things to kind of keep myself whole. And one of the things that I did was I did a lot of journaling. I learned early on that writing things down and looking for ways to look at the positive side, having goals was really critical for me. So I began to do that. And I also realized the importance of understanding really what having what sales is and what it isn't and then being able to have some sort of a process or a system i think today when i work with women one of the things that i see is the same thing they come into a class or i have conversations with them and there's a lack of confidence and i think with women everybody has a lack of confidence on something but with women i see that they oftentimes use that as a means to to be a roadblock really to taking risks. And when I made that decision to buy the Sandler franchise, I'll tell you, it was a big deal for me because I'm sitting there thinking, well, I begin to have all those second thoughts, which I see in many women today. Am I good enough to do this? Am I going to be able to pull it off? It really is more of a man's world. While I've sold for a long time, am I really going to be able to run a business? And it took some really strong work on my part to tell my to change my self-talk to be one of positive and I and I would not have been able to do it if I did not have a number of people in my life who were there to kind of rally me forward. But I can also tell you that the minute I signed that paperwork to become a franchise, my conviction, and I think this is really key Marcus, to me I was unconditionally committed to being successful. And a big part of that was having goals, having a plan, and holding myself accountable and having a coach to hold me accountable to what I needed to do. Because it was my lifeblood to make this business work. And it was important enough for me for that to happen. And that's what I I work with women on a lot is, first of all, what are your goals? Why are you looking to do what you're doing? And what's holding you back? And more often than not, it's that self-talk. It's not a lack of competency or any of those things. It really is we can talk ourselves in or out of things very rapidly. And I think for women, we have to work a little bit more on ourselves and our own belief system. This is really interesting as well. I've been for years and years and years, I struggled with goal setting because it always felt like a an intellectual exercise and I came across instead of smart goals dumb goals <laughs> which are dream-based uplifting method-friendly and behavior-based then once you've got that you find your purpose then you can overlay the smart piece in order to make them specific measurable attainable repeatable and time-bound in doing that that's given me a whole lot more clarity. It sounds like you found your purpose and that helped you build the conviction. What I'd like to explore is how you gave yourself permission to go beyond those self-limiting beliefs and the rights that you've realized you had as a saleswoman. 
Well, I would tell you part of the reason or the way in which I gave myself permission was quite frankly by watching men and how they sold poorly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean it that way. But I mean, I grew up in a technology industry. I had an opportunity to, to really be part of watching what folks from IBM did to startup companies. And I'm watching the way they're behaving. And it just didn't seem very natural to me. There was way too much use of PowerPoint. And there was not a focus on people. And I just was looking at that thinking, there's got to really be a better way. I'm pretty good at connecting with people. And I sincerely believed in my product and felt like I could help people. And I found that when I went on sales calls without men, I had a much more productive, real conversation because I wasn't going in being someone that I wasn't. And every time I did that, and between that and my journaling, I was finding, hey, you know what? I do have some magic here. And that empowered me a little bit. And the other piece, quite frankly, is I like to win. And I did have a goal to beat one of the guys on my team because he he would always come across like he was the best salesperson ever. And I'm thinking, I don't really think so, Bill. I really believe that I can be better than you. So I think it was a little bit of that competitive piece. And then it really was just my observations and belief. It was just a light bulb that went off earlier on that I'm not comfortable doing it this way. I like selling, but not that way. So I began to kind of test the waters and that began to really give me the confidence I needed. This then raises the question in my mind, because I think salespeople with a purpose will Mm -hmm. typically outsell salespeople without one. Absolutely. What I also realized is that if you go in with the intent of trying to make the sale, and that's a very selfish approach Mm -hmm. to selling. If you're thinking about the commission that you're going to make and such as that, then your intent is in the wrong place. And I think prospects pick up on it. So I'm curious about what your intent is when you go in to meet a prospect. Well, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And it took me a while in my career to realize that my mindset in the beginning was exactly what everyone else, what the traditional salesperson is. And part of that is because my boss was telling me that you got to go out there and sell, you got to close business, you got to convince them. All of that stuff, in my opinion, became head trash. And it really, quite honestly, wasn't until I started to understand the dynamic of a send and receive conversation. And if I could really get into a real conversation with somebody, that's when things really started to happen. Then I discovered Sandler and my whole mindset began to change because I realized then that really my job when I go out on a sales call is not to sell. It is really to help the prospect that I am with figure out if they really do have a problem and if it's an important enough problem to solve. And when I started thinking about it that way, and then I started saying to myself, you know what, Lorraine, you are really good at listening. You're really good at asking questions to get to what's really happening. By nature, you can be pretty nurturing when I want to. And I'm saying to myself, you know what, my mindset is I have the skills, I have the competency to do this, and I'm going to change things around. I'm going to really 
make sure that I'm uncovering and helping them figure out, is there really a reason to do business? And going in with that mindset just frees you because now it gives you permission to ask the questions. Your client or prospect feels a lot more comfortable. One of the most empowering things that I learned within Sandler is to start a conversation by saying, hey, look, I have no idea if there would be any real reason for us to work together. Let's take the next hour and let's ask each other questions back and forth and figure this thing out. And if there isn't, I'm okay with that. That whole start to a conversation just creates a much more equal playing field and a much more comfortable environment in which to converse. Certainly from my perspective, I've found that the disarming honesty Mm -hmm. that we teach our clients is incredibly refreshing. And also the upfront contract is a stroke of genius in that it protects both sides and it prevents that mutual mystification of the buyer not really being sure when they're going to be strong-armed and closed. And from our perspective, we always know where we are where we're headed, and what happens next. I'm really curious, as a woman salesperson, how did you find the upfront contract as a tool, not to manipulate, but to take gentle control of the sale and ensure there was clarity and direction? I think the upfront contract is one of the most important tools. And I think it's very critical for women because one of the things that happens just naturally with women, and part of it is our upbringing, is we oftentimes think that that we have to be good and that being good means that I have to follow that prospect system. Mm-hmm. And the upfront contract by stating and agreeing, you know, setting mutual agreement with that prospect of what's going to happen puts that woman in a much more equal status from the very beginning. And it also creates the environment of while I'm nice, I mean business. I'm here to conduct business. So it really sets the tone that I think is so important. And the other thing that I find, Marcus, is women by nature like to know where they're headed. You know, I think about, I always think about that whole analogy of who asks for directions, right? Now today we don't have to do it because we have GPSs, but It's the women usually are the ones who are pulling over saying, hey, how do I get somewhere where the guys are like driving around forever trying to find it before the GPS. Women like to know where we're heading next. So we tend to want to be prepared. And that upfront contract is really a wonderful tool to put in place with all of our prospects so they know. And and we, we come across immediately as a professional. Absolutely key. Absolutely. Well, this then raises another topic that's obviously central to the book, The Unapologetic Saleswoman, which is around transactional analysis. Would you mind giving a quick overview of what TA is and why it's important in any human relations model? Well, transactional analysis, I'm just going to keep it as simple as I can, is really the the theory that in every conversation that we have with someone, there's a send we send a message and we and that message is received. And when we are sending a message, we are in one of three ego states. We're an ego state which is very parental, and that could be where we are nurturing someone. So we might be in what I call a nurture, what we call a nurturing parent ego state, which sounds like, I'm really glad you brought that up. 
thanks for sharing that with me. Or, you know, I don't think things are as bad as maybe you're suggesting you've done a lot of things well. So it's really that where we give people encouragement. Another form of a parent sort of send message would be a critical parent, which is really where we are telling people what to do. I kind of call it the finger pointing ego state. You do this, you do that, which really has no place on a, on a sales call because uh, nobody likes to be told what to do. Then we have an ego state, which is a child ego state, which is where we are emotional. So it could be that we are very adaptive, which one of the challenges I see with women is we always want to be liked and need for approval. And that's really where we're asking a prospect, did I do a good job? Do you like that? Or I might even be throwing in extra things that I really shouldn't be on deal side. Or we might be coming across as more of a natural child ego state, which is one in which I might be sort of laughing or maybe being a little uncertain of myself. So I might be telling a joke or doing things that are just not that credible, perhaps. Or I might be a rebellious child, which is one in which I might get very stubborn or upset over something, which can obviously none of those have a real place in terms of salesperson on a call. And then the other is the adult, which comes over time. And that is more of that intellectual piece, the logical aspect of you, where we're looking at things more from an intellectual standpoint. And it's a very, very key thing, something that when I learned about transactional analysis, my background is psychology. So I was looking at it earlier when I was doing more social work things as how people present. And the reality is when we're in a sales conversation, it's our responsibility to really make sure that that conversation is a comfortable one. So one of the things that we work with is to be really always more nurturing and to use our adult side when we're in our conversations to really keep that child emotional piece out of our sales call. So taking that a step further then, obviously prospects tend to view salespeople with a certain amount of distrust and skepticism because the reputation salespeople have and the negative experience many of them will have had as well. One of the most powerful things that we do within Sandler, obviously, is questioning. And how do you use TA and the upfront contracting process to make sure that you can not only ask tough and challenging and insightful questions, but get the answers to the questions that you asked? Good question. One of the things that we work on and that relates to transactional analysis is how you ask a question is as important as the question. A couple of things. One is, in terms of an upfront contract, we want to make sure that our prospect doesn't have any surprises. Telling the person up front that one of the things on your agenda for the meeting or the phone call is that you will have some questions to ask. And for me, one of the things that I do is I'll even say, really, today, I think we can agree that we're here to figure out if there's any reason to work together. Now, that means that I am going to have to ask you some questions. And sometimes the questions that I ask are a little uncomfortable. They might be uncomfortable for me to ask, or they may be uncomfortable maybe for you to answer. So if that happens, let me know and we can reword it or do something a little bit different. But my intent is to figure out with you whether or not there's a need that needs to be addressed. And is that okay? I upfront, I prepare them. In terms of how I use transactional in my questioning, 
knowing that people are going to be disclosing things that puts them at risk, meaning they may be having real problems that are affecting them financially or their business is really suffering as a result of it. And maybe these were past decisions that they made that just didn't work out. So part of what I'm always working on is to make sure that that person is, is really more okay than I am. And I use my questioning format is very nurturing. So I might say, would it be okay if, or can we explore this? Or really, I, you're doing a great job on this piece of your business. I think maybe you're beating yourself up a little bit more than you need to. You've done a lot of things right. So I'm, I'm using it as a means to encourage people to not only be comfortable, but to really trust me because I know that I'm going to get nowhere unless we have a very trusting relationship. So instead of bopping somebody over the head with telling them what they need to do, which is more of that critical parent approach, I very much use my questioning skills in a format that's very nurturing. And then I'll use my adult piece oftentimes when I'm going to be sharing maybe how others have done something or maybe when I have to uh, present you know, when I get to my presentation part of my selling process. So I hear exactly what you're saying, and I absolutely agree. That said, I suspect that sometimes if you don't do that in the right way with the right tone and the right intent, you may come across as being subservient, or you may come across as lacking in confidence if you're saying things like, you know, I get the sense there may not be a reason to do business or sounds like you're doing a great job. So I'm curious because certainly in my experience, a lot of women say that they don't take, get taken as seriously as their male counterparts. How do you find that balance between being genuinely nurturingly assertive and not coming across as maybe being begging or asking, giving the power to the buyer? Just because you're nurturing doesn't mean that you're not being assertive. And to your point, the tonality in which you ask is absolutely critical. And it's a balance. If I'm working with, let's say, a guy who happens to be a very dominant or challenging kind of person, I know that I'm not going to be using the softer tonality with that person. But I'm still going to give this person some positive strokes. So I might say something like, hey, Marcus, got it. I see you're, you know, you're doing a great job over there on that front. I do have to ask you a couple questions, though. I'm a little confused over a few things here. So I'm still using that ego state, but my tonality changes and how I ask the question changes. Another thing that I, I say to women all the time is your questions that you ask have to be relevant, right? And I see a lot of times people will ask questions that have no relevancy. Oh, how are you today? Or they'll, they'll say, what are you using today? Is your, who are you working with today? Well, I may care about those things. It's not really why I'm there. I'm there to figure out if they have a problem. So what they do ahead of time is very critical. So when I work with women, I say, what are the problems that you create a mind map or create a list? What are the problems that from your own experience, you think this particular company or person might have as a problem that your product or service can fix? And then your questions that you're asking are going to help you to gain credibility because what you're doing is when you're asking something like, 
oftentimes when I'm working with someone in this industry, I find that they are struggling to find talented salespeople. And as a result, they're either settling for people that are less than stellar or they're finding themselves having to do the job themselves. What are you experiencing? So it's really our ability, and I think that's what separates and and women can do very well, is we can ask relevant questions that get that connection. And what I find is when a good conversation is happening, and I'm saying things like, that's great, good job, they don't even notice that. Because what it's really doing is it's just inspiring them to tell me more. But I think your stature, your tonality, and that upfront contract are all very important for women. You have to go in with that sort of full package of confidence, and I'm here to do business. Absolutely. Okay. One of the other things that I love about the work that we do, and it comes from my favorite program that we run in Sandler, which is the No Guts, No Gain program, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the Bill of Rights. I'm curious, what are the rights that you believe you have and what do you teach your clients, particularly the women, about their rights in the sales process? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I start with telling them that they have the right to be there because I find a lot of times women question whether or not selling is the right career for them. Can they really do it? And I have to, you know, be honest, we have to prove ourselves a lot more than men, you know, because a lot of times the people who are hiring us may have a mindset that, uh, you know, men are better salespeople than women, which is not true. And also sometimes our prospects have this preconceived notion that a woman is not going to know the stuff as well or doesn't have the experience. So it's really the first thing is that that rule is that you do, you have every right to be there. So that's the first thing. And then secondly, is I teach them that you are equal status to the person you are with. I remember, Marcus, when I first got started with Sandler, I had owned, I had been a CEO of a, of a training business in the technology industry before that. I mean, I'd call somebody and they'd call me back, right? So suddenly I buy the Sandler franchise and I have no clients and I am a salesperson. I'm a sales professional. And I remember sitting in the lobby of one of my first calls and I'm sitting and sitting and sitting there, right? And I'm like, I'm beginning to doubt myself. You know I'm saying? Well, I'm just a salesperson. They really don't want to see me. And I'm just like, myself all this negative stuff. And finally, I said to myself, whoa, you know what, Lorraine? You're a business owner. You have every right to be here. And I said, if you go in that attitude of what you're feeding yourself, which is that negative self-doubt stuff, it's going to come across in your call. So it's how and what we feed ourselves before we get there. And having that belief that you have every right to be there, that in fact, you have that competency and that Skill. In fact, you, you're better than most guys because you're using some very natural tendencies of getting in there to really put people at ease. We're great connectors. You know, we're all about really, we like to share with others. So women are great referrers. So we leverage our connections a lot better. So I really say to them, who do you know? You know, you have wealth of people who can help you to be successful and you have every right to ask them. And guess what? They want to help you. 
So those are some of the things that I work on from a rule perspective. And I also, I think a very important one is the rule that not everyone is qualified to do business with you. Putting yourself in that mode of, I'm not here to convince, you're here really to have a conversation, that it's your choice in terms of whether or not you're going to pursue it or not pursue it. I would suggest, hey, write down how many no's you got, because that, to me, says you're doing the right thing. You're not taking business that doesn't make sense, and you're not begging. Begging is the worst thing we can do, and uh, it's going in prepared, I think, is very critical as well. Absolutely. When you calculate what the cost is to get one opportunity to final stage, I consider it an act of gross misconduct and negligence where salespeople do not do a pre-call plan and then they don't rehearse and then they don't do a post-call debrief to capture the lessons whether they win or lose. Because when you consider that it might take 20 dials to get one meeting, and you might do 30, 40, 50 dials in a day. And then your conversion rates, when you actually calculate it, might only be one in three at final stage. But if you've gone through three or four meetings, you could easily have sunk 40 to 60 hours to get to that point. And that hidden cost, it may not appear on the balance sheet, but it's really inefficient. And given that time is our most valuable commodity and cannot be retrieved, I think the planning piece is crucial. So absolutely applaud that. I would also say that, again, for both men and women, but I think women in particular, one of the things that really can make the difference is having a selling process that fits a woman like a glove. Because I think the reality is most people don't really have a sales process. They show up and part of it is because they've never received any training. Or they watch what others do, which is not necessarily the best approach to selling. But I have found that when women come through the Sandler selling process, it is like I can I can see over the months that I work with them, that person transform from somebody who may have had some self-doubt, who really wasn't sure how to handle some of the different personality styles or questions they were going to get or not really sure where they needed to go next, I see that transformation of a woman who is really empowered and they totally buy in to having that clear next step. When I go on sales calls and I get to the end of my meeting, I'm like, okay, I think we've come to the point of our meeting where I'm going to recap and we're going to mutually decide what our clear next step needs to be. And I use those words. And I watch the behavior of the person sitting across from me, the body language, just they a little taken aback. But it keeps me on track. And it, again, tells the person I'm with that we're going to figure this out together, but we got to make sure I'm not leaving without a clear next step. And I'll say that. One of the things that I never leave without a clear next step, and that clear next step could be that it's over, that's fine. But let's make sure we have a clear next step for both of our sakes. Absolutely. I think out of the 10 best people I've ever worked with, seven of them were women. The qualities that they had, they were thorough in their preparation, mm-hmm. they were highly professional. They listened. They were systematic. They cared. They were not selfish. They were very businesslike and they drove the sale forward without being pushy and they fell back 
a lot when they were under attack and mm-hmm. never took it personally and they were consistent. And yeah. I think a lot of the qualities that people associate with great salespeople are fictions. The gift of the gap, being able to talk. I think you listen your way to sales. You have to be able to empathize. And in order to do that, you have to be able to get inside the mind, the skin of the person that you're selling to and understand mm-hmm. what it's really like to be them, to live the way they do, to face the pressures that they do. And the power of empathy is enormous. So what I'm really interested in, again, this may not be appropriate, but I'm just curious in terms of the skills as a mother and being able to bring that understanding of another human being into the sale. What are your thoughts about that? I think it is it is one of the attributes that women have. Women who have children It's that natural instinct. What do we want to do? We want to care for someone else. We're looking out for them. We have their best interest in mind. That what we want to do when we go on a sales call, we want to understand. We want to make sure that that person is going to be comfortable and that whatever we, if we do something with them, that it really is the best thing. And sometimes that mother has to deliver bad news. And I think that women by nature can actually use a little bit of that vulnerability that we may really feel as a tool when it comes to bringing up something that may not be that comfortable or sharing maybe something that didn't work out with that particular prospect because we're talking to another human being. And that's what I say to women all the time. Whether it's a man or a woman, you have natural instincts that you, of being a mom, of caring, of, and I like to say, we can always smell a dirty diaper, right? And I think that's one of the things that happens on a sales call, right? You've got to be able to figure out, is there some stink in the room? And if there is, we got to take some action on it. And I think that's where having that system and knowing how to ask questions in a way that is not coming across as aggressive, because I know a lot of women, they think that sales, you have to be aggressive and you have to be this outgoing chatterbox. My secret has always been, my personality style is I am a, and in this, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I am a steady relator compliant, which means that I'm introvert by nature. My strength is not to have these lengthy conversations with people. And I have found sales is so easy because that's all I have to do is really listen. And I just have to have the right questions to ask. People will share a lot of stuff with you if you give them an opportunity. And it's really knowing what it is you should be asking. And things like our Sandler pain funnel, when I train people, I say, I don't even need to know your business. I can carry a conversation with your prospect to a certain point. Then I'm going to be in trouble because I don't have the product or service knowledge. But, you know, I say your best friend is saying things like, tell me more about that, right? Or what have you tried to do so far? People love to tell their story and let them, let's allow them to tell their story. Let's direct it, hand them the paintbrush and the paint. You just happen to be helping them to dissect what's really going on. And then your job is to recap it. And if you do a good job of that, you've earned good credibility 
you certainly have earned some trust. And if you've got a process behind it, you're going to have significant success. And women are always trying to figure out what's really going on with their kids, right? So it's very similar attributes. Well, on that note, let's move to the slightly more contentious question around the disparity between women and men in terms of career advancement. And it would be easy to fall into the slightly misogynist view that if women choose to take, choose to take time out to have a family, then why should their male counterparts be penalized through positive discrimination? It's only fair and right that women who take time out of their career should fall behind and that there should be a disparity in pay. I'm just curious your reaction to that. Well, I think it's some guy that came up with that rule. (laughs) It's unfortunate, but it is true that people continue to feel that way. I would like to think that we have moved beyond it, but we have not. One of the things that I, I really feel is that women in a workforce, oftentimes their disadvantage is that they are not as assertive as men when it comes to what it is they're looking to accomplish. And they're not sharing that. And I think that women also need to have those types of conversations with their managers of what it is they want and that they are looking at careers as a success, as part, another part of their life that's an important piece. And that the two do not have to, just because I decide I want to take some time off and have children, doesn't mean that I'm not serious about my job. I am. And I think women by nature are very good at multitasking. And we have to kind of call people out on that whole mindset. And I think as more and more women are working today and proving that, in fact, we can handle both. It's not necessarily easy, but I think it's become something that, that people are having a hard time arguing against. I agree with you in principle. The one thing I will take issue with is around multitasking. Mm-hmm. I have a, a poster on my wall, which is the art of doing twice as much as you should, half as well as you could. I think they're very good at is prioritizing and saying no to stuff that is not the right stuff. That's the only thing I would challenge on that. You're correct. It really is prioritizing because that is exactly what has to happen. Some things are no longer as important when you have both a career and raising kids. You have to make those choices. This brings me to the next bone of contention. I mean, as a business, my wife and I decided we would sponsor as a result of the inspiration from the unapologetic saleswoman, a scholarship for women in sales. We got quite a bit of flack from men who felt that they deserved a shot as well. But it's our business, so to hell with them. And we've uh, selected a lady who comes from a fantastic corporate background, IBM, SAP, challenged the thinking and grew the professional services practice in her last role by 400% by applying all the stuff that you've been talking about today, planning, nurturing, coaching, developing, listening, helping her people to work out, well, what's the real issue here? Not getting stuck in a rut, which I've always defined as a coffin with both ends kicked out. Making sure that her people were advancing and she was getting the best out of them. And meanwhile, she was balancing a family And what's interesting is her brother, who is fantastic, I've met him too, but he made two or three career advancements beyond where she was able to get to. 
And this brings me to this next issue, which is the birth, the paucity of women in senior leadership positions in sales. It's a travesty in my book. Uh, you know, we, we set the, the scholarship up because we wanted our daughters to have role models, strong female role models. Mm-hmm. And what I'm constantly frustrated by is the fact that only, I think it's only 12% of senior sales leadership positions are filled by women. Now, how do we redress that imbalance? And what do women need to do to assert themselves more effectively so that they are considered for those roles? Well, I think part of it is educating the people who are doing the hiring or the promotion. I think, and also when you think about women in sales, Marcus, with with the exception of some more traditional sales roles for women, like more of the consumer real estate side, where you tend to have a lot of women who are in those roles. But even in selling organizations, women, it's not 50-50. We're still about 30% of the workforce in professional sales tends to be women. So I think it's I think it starts with we have to educate the people who are doing the hiring to become more diverse in terms of where they're looking and what they're focusing on when they are looking to bring women into a sales role. I I don't think we do a very good job of really advertising sales as something that women should even be considering to start with. So that would be one thing. I also feel like sometimes the things that we advertise as important for the job may not necessarily be the important part of the job. But for women, a lot of times what we do is we have our little checklist and we're looking at what that job profile is all about. And if we can't check all the boxes, then we won't even apply. I think that part of it comes from that education and really how are we positioning what that job is. And I think another piece is that a lot of times women will wait for someone to ask them what their goals are or what's important to them. And one of the things that I, I mean, I worked for a guy and he never asked me those things. You know, I liked him, but he never asked me. And I am a person, I got to kind of know where I'm going and I got to have a plan. I have something written so I know where I'm headed. I remember saying to Paul, hey, listen, Paul, you haven't asked me what's important to me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to schedule a time to sit down with you and I'm going to share with you what is important to me. And I want to put together a plan to help me get there. And I think women have got to we can't be waiting around for somebody to offer us something. We have to be communicating that these things are career areas we'd like to be considered for. And we have to really, we got to stand up and speak up. I think it's an important element for women. So that whole piece around assertiveness versus aggression, that's a a balancing act that Certainly, in my experience of dealing with a lot of women in sales over the last mm-hmm. 15 years as a Sander franchisee, they don't assert themselves and they play, they hide their light. And I think that's such a shame because they're 50% of the population. And they tend, the women that I've worked with have been phenomenal. I'm working with a young lady at the moment who I reckon has the potential to be one of the best salespeople I have ever worked with. She is diligent, she's focused, she's organized, she's a, far, a really quick study, and her intent is fantastic. She loves to win, and she takes direction, 
but she challenges and pushes back. She asserts herself. And I think it's partly cultural. And it you know, starts in the family, then reinforced in school. And all these role models I have a real beef about the fashion and cosmetics industry and the image that's being sent. Soap operas and media present an image of women as being subservient, as being supportive rather than taking the lead. And if you look at the stats on women setting up in business, I think it's over 80% of women-run businesses survive the three to five-year breaking point. However, over 80% operate out of savings or family money. Very few get funding and they have a tendency to survive not only longer, but deliver more consistent results. What can parents do in terms of raising girls' self-concept and get them to see for themselves that sales and business are a domain that women can thrive in? That's a good question. I think one thing that we need that parents can work on is I notice that women, when somebody says you've done a great job or you know, you know, it was all on you in terms of what happened, women tend to become very demure. Oh no, it wasn't just me, it was all these other people. So I think parents need to work with their daughters on being okay with accepting accolades. I think that's really important because that is going to be important when you are in business. If you have done a good job, you're going to need to be able to say, well, thank you. I worked hard on this and I'm very pleased with the results. I'm glad that I've been able to contribute in a way that makes a difference. But you usually see women. And the other thing is, as, as a child, being taught that your voice is as important as the boy's voice, right? Because in my family, I know I grew up, when the boys spoke, I became second fiddle, right? So it really is making sure, paying attention to the fact to that, that you are consciously giving everybody equal opportunity to express their opinion. And that whole encouragement piece, I think, is, you know, what are you real what are the messages? Paying attention to what those messages are that you're sending to your daughter. Are they one of strength and confidence or are they ones of watch your turn? You know, I mean, we have to obviously teach kids right from wrong, but are you really kind of segregating or teaching that daughter that their role is not as important or as equal to the boys, I think is really a good, important place to start. In the book, you have the Eleanor Roosevelt quote, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And that's right. I think that's really telling because I think what happens is people give away their power mm-hmm. and they abdicate control because they take a subservient position because conceptually they don't see themselves as equal. And certainly with our daughters, it's something that we've encouraged them all the time to have an opinion, to be different, to see themselves never as anyone else's inferior. Even on their worst day, they are never less than everyone else's equal. It doesn't always make for harmony. Certainly in the house, I've got three daughters, a wife and a female cat. And I definitely know where my position is. And it's right at the bottom of the pile. 
I think that point that you made in the book about giving away your power is really critical. And we have to encourage more women to see themselves conceptually as good as, if not more effective than their male counterparts. And I think one of the challenges here, you you touched on it in terms of the positive reinforcement and the praise. I'm reading a book at the moment by a guy called Alfie Cohn called Punished by Rewards. It's really fascinating seeing how praise and how rewards are compensation based on results that creates a disparity can diminish people's self-concept. And what I'm really interested in as to kind of wrap this up is the imbalance in compensation between men and women. Because it, despite the Equal Pay Act in the UK in the early 1970s, and I guess you guys have got the same thing over in the States, the disparity between men and women's compensation is enormous. It can be anywhere between 12 and 30, 40%. So again, what I'm really interested in is from a leadership position, what message do you reckon that sends to women? And how can women then assert themselves and say, well, hang on a second, I'm delivering as good as, if not better, results what should we do? The whole compensation, it's just, it just boggles my mind that we still have these issues, but they are out there. On the sales side, I think we have a better opportunity for equal. When I work with leaders, you know, one of the things that I, I share with them is that when you're making hiring decisions, first and foremost, are you considering a diverse, we can say we're considering a diverse workforce, but are you real? And when you think about pay, what's determining really what that pay should be? Because, and I I try to just educate them in terms of women, when they are on your team, tend to not only outperform oftentimes men in a sales role, but when you put them in a leadership role, they oftentimes will create a much more, they they are going to create a much more diverse team of people that will stick around longer. So with leaders, I spend a lot of time in our our sales management class on the fact that compensation is not a gender discussion. It really is what is a fair compensation for somebody to bring you revenue within your organization. And if you're going to be playing that game, then I can tell you the person who's going to leave is going to be the woman because that's a very sensitive topic for us these days. So let's not even start there. It's not an easy question to really address, but I I think it's an education thing and it's really calling out some of these leaders today that have been doing this, that it's just not acceptable anymore. One of the things that does sometimes baffle me is when women get promoted into senior positions and then they don't necessarily have women on their team or they fall into the trap of doing what was done to them. And so they'll offer women a lower package and they're not really promoting the diversity that just makes the whole profession better. I am curious why that happens. I'm not sure that anyone really has an answer to it. Your thoughts? I think if you want to attract women to the workforce, part of it is some of the things that motivate women are different or some of the things that are more important to women, such as flexibility in terms of the work 
schedule and those types of things, are we even recruiting in a way that is speaking to a diverse audience? Because I think part of it is women are not even aware of certain types of jobs or just the way they are presented stops us from even responding. That would be a key thing. And I think that we have to do a better job of diversity training within these organizations. And I think you're seeing more and more of that coming to the surface with some of the different rallies and things that are happening today in terms of people really wanting to uh, be treated as an equal and um, without any sort of discrimination. Fair enough. We're hitting the hour now, so I'd like to wrap up. What are your conclusions in terms of women in sales? And the title is The Unapologetic. What are your conclusions, Lorraine? The title of the book is The Unapologetic Saleswoman. Yeah. What would you like the listeners to go away and do as a result of reading the book? I wrote the book really for a couple reasons. One is I wanted to be able to share not only my experiences, but what I've seen other women experience who have entered into sales. And what I have seen happen to myself and those women who have gone through, and in our case, the Sandler Selling System, and the impact that it has had on the pay that they bring home and their own confidence and their ability to really be equal status. So that was kind of why I wrote the book for those in the field and for those who might be really considering sales. What is sales really? Because at the end of the day, sales is such a good fit for women. We have so much to bring to it very naturally that I think would be refreshing for those who are our buyers. And I think that with the right mindset of what selling is and having a system and knowing what to do we will gain that confidence and the confidence to be treated with respect and equally. And there's no apology needed, certainly for being a woman and for being a woman in sales. It's a tremendous, terrific career. It probably has more flexibility than many positions that are out there, which is something that women are interested in. And we have a lot more control over our destiny. And, uh, you know, I like to look at when I'm selling, I'm in business for myself in many respects. And I think women are given a lot more latitude to kind of develop themselves if they have a process around what they do. Absolutely. So, Lorraine, thank you so much for today. This has been a really interesting and engaging discussion. How can people get hold of you? Well, they can search me. I have a LinkedIn profile, and that would be a good way. It's Lorraine Ferguson. I'm in Albany, New York, or they can reach me at Lorraine at Sandler.com. I'm happy to answer questions or, or to have some dialogue with folks who may want to learn a little bit more about being an unapologetic saleswoman. Thank you so much. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I hope that we get a chance to speak again because I'd love to see how women have taken up the mantle and what they're doing in order to progress and to take advantage of what I think is going to be a shift in thinking. In particular, I think one area that I'd love to explore in the future is women in the channel, because the channel really requires the ability to build trust and build relationships and to nurture and coach. And if you look at the trend, 90% of technology will be sold through the channel 
by 2026. Today, 75% of all products are sold through partners. And increasingly, direct sales will be moving into the channel. And what's really going to be key is the ability of vendors to build a strong sales channel. And I'd love to talk to you about your thoughts on that in a future podcast, if you'd be up for it. I would love that. And I, you know, I really feel that women in a channel leadership role, that's some good magic. So I'm absolutely. This is terribly exciting. Okay. So Lorraine, thank you. This is Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitive Podcast signing off. But before I do, I'd like to invite women in the southeast of England who believe that they have something special to offer within sales. They don't have to be salespeople at the moment. If they're running their own business, if they're in a role and they're considering a transfer into sales, we are starting interviews now for our 2020 scholarship, which will be announced in January 2020. We've just started with our first woman scholar, And we're really excited about the direction that's taking, but we would love to hear from you. So if you're interested in being part of that scholarship selection process, please email mcauchi at sandler.com with scholarship in the subject line. That's Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Thanks for listening. Please like, comment, and share. Bye-bye.